the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, where we discuss all things crypto-related. Your host, Kieran Ryan. We're talking about the history and, more importantly, the future of money. Bitcoin was created more than a decade ago as a form of money for the digital age. What was dismissed in the early days as an interesting, if meaningless, response to the 2008 financial crash has demonstrated surprising resilience. And more than that, it's launched thousands of coins and tokens using cryptography as the underlying tech. But none have the durability and security of Bitcoin. Bold predictions have been made for Bitcoin as a form of money, some even suggesting it will become the world's new reserve currency. If so, that seems a long way off. But those who've written off Bitcoin as a Ponzi scheme and a passing fad are finding it a little harder to cling to that view. So where does Bitcoin feature in the monetary universe and what role will it play in our collective future? One man who's been studying the history of money and its likely future is Andrew Field, also co-founder of BitDirect, which has developed a pioneering method of securely storing Bitcoin. Hi, Andrew. Welcome to the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast. You've been studying the history of money for seven years, and I guess you've learned a few things along the way. But maybe first of all, just tell us your background and how you got into crypto. Hi, Karen. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for your time. My background was from investment banking. I worked for HSBC in London. My role there was selling the foreign exchange trading platforms to European clients. And that's where it's, it really started in going down the rabbit hole of what money really was. And that took me to the Federal Reserve website in 2007, which I thought was pretty pretty primitive and it started a lot of research into into the monetary system and how that's how that actually works and then after 2008 i founded an outdoor media business which i sold and uh we started my business partner and i an uh, it storage company in google campus in london and we were a few months into the building of this new storage platform when a Bitcoin ATM arrived at the Google campus. And that was when it, it, it intrigued me quite early on. And I purchased my first Bitcoin through that ATM. And then daily I used to occur, I used to head down to the ATM to buy it. And I was like, and that, that's when we discovered the white paper. And I said to my business partner, we are clearly on the wrong path here. This is going to revolutionize the entire financial system. And that's where we started building at that stage our own Bitcoin platform for high net worth individuals. And then from there, what landed up happening is I decided to see what the markets were like in trading Bitcoin. So from London, I was uh, seeing now my current wife who was living in South Africa, and she set up a bank account for me in South Africa. And we went through local Bitcoins and started selling Bitcoin to the population in South Africa. And I was absolutely blown away by the interest at that stage. I think it was largely due to quite a few Ponzi schemes going around, but the take up of Bitcoin in South Africa was absolutely immense. So when I realized that Bitcoin was a, a currency that transcends all boundaries, I was clearly living in the wrong country and so decided to move back to South Africa to continue our Bitcoin pursuits. And then from there, I lost quite a few Bitcoin on an exchange hack and always in the back of our minds, I've thought about uh, the security of Bitcoin. And so we built our own Bitcoin storage platform to store our own Bitcoin on. And that was the formation of BitDirect. We'll get to that in a minute. That's correct. Perfect. 
Okay, so you talked about the, the white paper. You're talking there of the Bitcoin white paper, which is very brief, quite easy to understand, and very well worth the time. And if you read it, you see that Bitcoin's founder, Satoshi Nakamoto, was he's trying to come up with a solution to the monetary crisis that led to the crash of 2008. That's when millions of people around the world lost their homes and their livelihoods. He identified the fiat money system as the root cause of the problem, uh, particularly this inflationary aspect of fiat currencies. Give us a short history of money, and I'm talking here just a few minutes if you can, and how Bitcoin aims to solve the defects in these prior systems. Sure. Uh, I would just like to start just a very, very brief explanation of money is um, money came about because of the coincidence of wants. Back in the day when people had 12 goats and someone wanted a cow, but the person didn't want the goats. So what landed up happening is you needed a medium of exchange that they could both agree on where money could be the abstract concept in order to exchange money for the goats, money for the cows, and then they could agree on a unit of account for the transaction to occur. So there are a few properties of money that need to exist. One is money needs to be durable. So you can't have a you can't have fish or milk or anything like that as a as a viable medium of exchange. It needs to be portable, so you need to be able to carry it around. It needs to be divisible, so you can break it up into smaller units and it has to be a store of value. And that's the most important thing is the store of value and limited supply. And that's where Bitcoin comes in to the ecosystem. Um, I think Satoshi Nakamoto in his white paper completely undersold Bitcoin. And I think that was done on purpose in order to get the, the techies involved first. But it's not just peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash. Uh, it is actually a, a entirely new global monetary system. And just going back to the history of money, so gold landed up filling quite a few of those, those characteristics of viable money. But the problem with gold is its portability and the ability for gold to be transported long distances was very problematic. So what arose in that instance, in that instance is that people used to store gold with gold merchants and then they used to order, they used to issue receipts on that gold and people just used to trade on those gold receipts. But over time, what used to happen is the, the gold merchants realized that people never came back and claimed their gold. So what landed up happening is the gold merchants used to issue more and more receipts for the actual gold that they had in store. And uh, what landed up happening in that instance is that was the creation of the fractional reserve banking system as we know it today. And I think the most important thing that you can talk about the history of money that's most relevant to us is actually the creation of the Federal Reserve in 1913. Now, this is the central banking framework that all countries in the world actually operate under. There is nothing federal about the Federal Reserve in the US, and there are no reserves within the bank either. All they do is issue, issue money on a whim, and this has resulted in a deterioration, and this is a global occurrence of around 98% of the value of everyone's currency around the world. And this typically comes through in inflation. They tried to go back to the gold standards. During World War II, what transpired was that all the countries of the world, because of Germany's very aggressive stance, they landed up shipping all of their gold to the United States. And in 1944, as the world 
the world was coming to an end. They needed a new monetary system, and that's where they met in Bretton Woods, Bretton Woods in New Hampshire in the U.S. to come up with this new system. And what they did is they tied the U.S. dollar to gold at $35 per ounce, and then they tied all of the currencies of the world to the U.S. dollar. And this worked for a decade or two until the Vietnam War came about, and the population of the U.S. weren't going to fund it through taxes. So they landed up printing more money than they actually had gold uh, in their reserves. And Charles de Gaulle of France realized this. And so what he landed, he sent a warship to the U.S. to collect France's gold, and many other countries started to try and redeem their gold at $35 per ounce. And that's when Nixon and Kissinger took, well, Nixon took the U.S. off the gold standard in 1971. And since then, we have seen an ever-accelerating rate of government debt, inflation, and devaluation of the U.S. dollar to the point where gold, if you equate gold, I think it was in the region of about 40, $20 to $40 an ounce in 1971, and now it sits at $2,000. So there have been 3,500 fiat currencies that exist. Fiat means is Italian for let it be so. So that is when a government just says, let the currency have value because we say so. And they typically back it up with guns and bombs in the the US. And so in terms of the 3,500 fiat currencies, every single one has ended up in hyperinflation and every one, all of them land up falling by the wayside in the end. And because of Bitcoin's 21 million limited supply, this is a once in a species type event, I feel, that we will for many millennia use this as a unit account of account and store of value for our future generations. I mean, Ron Paul, who used to be a congressman in the U.S., um, I, I think he once said that the uh, the collateral for the U.S. dollar is the U.S. military, which you kind of touched on there. Um, and that, of course, gave that gave birth to the petrodollar, where uh, the, the U.S. required Saudi Arabia to transact in the U.S. dollar on all its oil sales. Although that does seem to be breaking up uh, at the moment, and there, there's uh, an opportunity here for competitors to come in. There's been talks about a BRICS currency. There have been talks about the yuan maybe being a replacement or running in parallel to the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency. And then, of course, there's Bitcoin, which has got some – Something that the others don't have in that nobody really controls it. There is no central bank and it cannot be inflated, right? That is, that's 100%. That's 100% correct. Um, it's completely immutable and that's 21 million caps. So the last one will be mined in the year 2140. So the process of mining is a process whereby a person computes a mathematical problem and they get the rights to allocate a block of transactions onto the block chain and they get rewarded for Bitcoin for that. And that's uh, at an ever decreasing rate and it halves every four years the the new issuance of Bitcoin. And we're sitting at in the region of about 90% of all Bitcoin have been mined at this stage. And it'll be ever decreasing to the year 2140. And there'll be 32 halvings all in all in terms of the new issuance of Bitcoin. And that's the most important characteristic of Bitcoin, I feel, is the the store of value due to the limited supply. So 
this is going to be a game changer for financial markets and there'll be a lot of stability instead of these booms and crashes that occur in stock markets and bank bailouts and all of that. It might be a bumpy road to get there, but it's going to it's going to be a much smoother existence once we have sound money that is more consistent than we've got with the fiat currency system. I mean, Bitcoin is considered a revolutionary act, just the creation of it as something which is outside of any sovereign nation's control or central bank's control. Are you a Bitcoin maximalist? That's a term, uh, meaning you don't have much interest in any of the altcoins out there. And if you are, explain why you are a Bitcoin maximalist. So my, my expertise and my knowledge all comes from money. And in order to have sound money, if we look at all money in existence, from seashells to gold to all of that, they all had a production cost associated with them, which means that even seashells back in Africa when many centuries ago, someone had to get loaves of bread, walk to the coast, spent days collecting the seashells, return back to their homeland, and it could take a month or two for them to do that. So there was a lot of effort and work required in order to in order to produce the currency. And if we look at Bitcoin, there is something called a proof of work. So these miners have to expend electricity and buy mining hardware. So every new Bitcoin that gets created involves a huge amount of effort or resources in order to create in order to create this new currency. The issue with a lot of altcoins that I see is that there's a lot of them are just issued and there's no there's no production cost associated with them. And any currency that's had zero production cost associated with them over the years has all fallen by the wayside. This is not to say that there might be some some method of tokenization and um, stocks to do with markets and ownership and that sort of thing. But in the long run, this world needs one unit of account and one store of value. And we've already got 160 fiat currencies in the world. So there might be some others that exist. But what I feel is that a lot of the functionality will be built on the Bitcoin blockchain in the future as the technology develops. Do you see a role for stable coins? Because they seem to be one of the real big use cases that have emerged out of this whole revolution we've been talking about. Very much so. If, if we start looking at the countries that have got hyperinflation, like Turkey, Egypt, Venezuela, Zimbabwe, uh, even Nigeria has got a 25% inflation rate at the moment, is that Bitcoin, because it's so tiny, and that's the only reason why it's so volatile at the moment, is that people need a way more stable method in order to store their wealth. And the issue that we've got is that not everyone has access to a dollar dollar bank account. And even though the dollar is the the best horse in the glue factory at the moment, eventually Bitcoin will overtake that as the global reserve currency. But because they don't have access to US bank accounts, they need a viable store of value. And that's where stable coins come into it. So it's it's a great transition step from their depreciating currency into something more stable. And what will systematically happen over time is that you will get all the third world and developing world currencies that will devalue, including the South African rand. I envisage 100 rand to the, to the US dollar with over the next decade or two. And then what will transpire is the, the US dollar will grow considerably and it might even take up the whole world. And this is through stable coins because the ease of transaction, transacting with stable coins is 
much easier than traditional fiat money where you can download an app, KYC yourself and be transacting within a couple of minutes. So I think on the way to complete Bitcoinization, stable coins will grow and form a viable role within the ecosystem. Right. A stable coin is, is typically a, a coin uh, that is built onto the blockchain, but it's pegged to a currency like the US dollar for people who uh, don't know about that. Uh, one of the interesting cases coming out of Argentina, for example, and Venezuela, is, uh, people have cottoned onto this and they realize that they, they can actually defeat this, this continual deflation in their own currency. Uh, by switching into stable coins, U.S. dollar-backed stable coins. And it's happening in Africa quite a lot as well. You know, Malawi, you mentioned Nigeria, countries with high inflation. People have woken up to the, the, the potential for these things. So this is a way that you are seeing uh, some revolutionary uh, use cases, I think, for, for this blockchain technology, no? Very much so. Um, I think in terms of peer-to-peer -peer payments and the ability for people to transact, it's going to form a very, very big component of the financial system going forward. And I think it's taken away a lot of uh, Bitcoin's price appreciation and uh, the store of value that a lot of these nations are actually using it for because they want something more stable than the than Bitcoin, uh, but something as easily and accessible as a stable coin to store there to, to, to save in. All right. Now, I'm quite interested to pick up on this point about BitDirect, which is your company, and it is, it's a technology for storing Bitcoin. You mentioned that you suffered a, a hack or that your, uh, your, your Bitcoin, well, some of your Bitcoin was stolen. This, of course, is a frightening prospect for a lot of people who, and it's calls that we get in emails, we get at MoneyWeb, uh, they're afraid because they hear so many of these hacks. So you may need to just sort of explain how you came to formulate this, this bit direct technology. Sure. Uh, there are many custody solutions out there. You've got hard wallets, you've got soft wallets. Uh, so I take it your system's got some fairly unique properties. It does, yeah. This system came about because we need, we thought it would be probably safer and better if we built our own system to store our Bitcoin and then offer the services out to the general public. In summary, what BitDirect is, it's a shared custody Bitcoin management platform that uses hardware wallets and multi-signature wallets to store Bitcoin. So I think we need to start on what a hardware wallet is. It's like your old school banking dongle, which stores your private key, where you can store your Bitcoin effectively on that dongle. And that comes with a 25 word, 24 word freeze seed phrase, which you can use to back up that device. The issue that you've got that is if someone finds those 24 words, what lands up happening is they've got complete access to your Bitcoin and you will lose that completely. So this is extremely daunting for a lot of people to store their entire net worth or a large portion of their net worth on these dongles. What BitDirect does is, I think we need to explain what a multi-signature wallet is as well, is this is built into the Bitcoin blockchain. And we've built a two of three multi-signature wallet where two of three people need to sign off on a transaction for the funds to move. So BitDirect holds one key. It can be your friend, family member, financial advisor, or someone else that holds another key and you hold the third key. So to make a transaction, you would sign off on the dongle or the hardware device and then either BitDirect or the 
or your nominated nominated third party can sign off on the transaction as well. And what this does is if you lose your hardware device, BitDirect and your um, and your third party can sign off on a transaction to move those funds. And this is cold storage Bitcoin, whereby with an exchange, you can't actually view your Bitcoin on the blockchain. The issue with exchanges is that you don't know what you look at on the app is just a representation of the Bitcoin that the exchange holds. And you don't know if that matches one to one in terms of the actual reserves that they've got. With BitDirect, you've got your own unique address with your Bitcoin on the blockchain that you can type into any block explorer and you'd be able to verify that the Bitcoin is yours. There's also the issue of inheritance planning, is that if if you die, are you sure that your spouse and your relatives will have access to Bitcoin on your dongle, on your hardware device? And in this instance, BitDirect will work with your nominated third party in order to get the Bitcoin back to your back to your loved ones. There is the ability that for the the co-signer to charge a fee for this, but direct charges 0.25% per annum for this service. And we feel that cold storage, because we're dealing with uh, hardware devices, this is cold storage of client Bitcoin. So there's no, there's, there are no keys. The, but direct stores one key online, but because the other two are offline, it's impossible for the system to be hacked. And BitDirect only controls one key. So there's no way that we can make up, make off with your funds or move your funds or do anything like that. We are purely there as a backup in case you lose your hardware device or recovery seed. It also provides an extra layer of security on your recovery seed. So if someone found your recovery seed and bought a hardware device and entered that into the hardware device, it would just be a blank balance that they see there because you need the cosigner key in order to create a uh, to create a new wallet. So it is the safest way in order to store Bitcoin. And this is an industry standard that's uh, coming into effect more and more now, is the capabilities of offering multi-signature wallets with hardware devices. Right. And cold storage, of course, means not connected to the internet. So you cannot be hacked. Uh, multi-signature yeah. means that you know when you, i think in your case you need you need sign up from three people in order to no to do a so it's a two of three multi-sig so two of three. Okay. It's, it's it's two of three in this instance um three of three would be too risky that if someone lost their key in that instance then all funds would be lost so we have built a, so there is a redundancy that everyone can be sure that if they lost their recovery seed or lost access to their hardware device or lost their hardware device and their recovery seed, that they do have access to to their funds. And the fact that someone would choose uh, a nominated third party as a friend, family member, or financial advisor means that they also only hold one key. So they can't make off with your funds. So all they can do is restore new devices and approve and deny transactions that that come from the client. All right, very quickly, South Africans are not great savers. Uh, There are a number of studies that come out every year showing this to be the case. And it looks like the situation's actually getting worse, particularly since COVID. Give us your opinion. Can Bitcoin solve this problem of poor savings in South Africa? 
without a doubt. The issue that we've got at the moment in the, in the Bitcoin landscape is that people invest more than they can afford to lose. And because of the volatility of Bitcoin, when it drops 50%, people panic sell. And typically what lands up happening is the the population or most people panic in that instance and sell their Bitcoin. But if you can take a long-term a long-term view of five to ten years, you'll you'll have many multiples of your of value from your your fiat savings. So that's the most important thing is is the long-term view. If you can buy Bitcoin, store it ideally with BitDirect and just leave it um, with BitDirect as well. We've got a lot of a lot of clients that are using it as they know they they elderly clients and they won't land up using Bitcoin in their lifetime, but they want to give it to their heirs. And so they realize that it'll have value in five to 10 years. And this is what most people should do is acknowledge that timeline and that time frame that this isn't an overnight get rich quick scheme and don't trade it. Don't trade it. Just buy it, hold it, leave it. And everyone will be pleasantly surprised in five to 10 years by the time uh, hyper Bitcoinization starts to kick in. All right, we talk a lot about income equality in South Africa. The, 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 the measure used for income equality is the Gini coefficient. South Africa is one of the worst in the world. It, it is quite unequal. Can Bitcoin help with that? Very much so. So if we have a look at the, the markets at the moment, there's a lot of price suppression that occurs in the cash settled futures markets. Now, not to be too technical, but the, that is traded on the SME, the CME in the US. Now, what this allows for is a lot of a lot of people to acquire Bitcoin at very, very low prices. And as Bitcoin grows further and further, what will end up happening is the population will acquire more and more Bitcoin. Now, the 30, I think it's the top 88 people in the world account for three and a half billion dollars of net worth. And what's going to land up happening is all of that net worth is going to have to flow into Bitcoin at some stage. And not just that, not just that, um, not just that money there's in all in all global wealth probably sits at around 400 trillion dollars and the bitcoin market is only 500 billion at this stage so we'll see in the next in the coming decades at least a price appreciation of 200 400 500 times and as long as people are dollar cost averaging so buying a small amount every single week and do that over over the coming years uh, what will systematically happen is all the value that's accumulated in the fiat currency system will either slowly or quickly, depending on the the stage that we're at, flow into the Bitcoin ecosystem. And it's got a huge potential to raise the net worth of South African people. I think this is one of the greatest things. We've always ranked in South Africa as in the top four of Google-related searches for the last four or five years. And I've been blown away by the interest and the 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 acknowledgement of Bitcoin as an asset class. And I think this could be one of the huge drivers of 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 country wealth and also individual wealth of people as time goes on. Yeah, I think the only obstacle there to wider adoption is just getting over this this issue of custody, which you've attempted to solve with BitDirect and the on-ramps and off-ramps. Uh, people, need, they, they're still having trouble with that and they don't quite trust the on-ramps and the off-ramps to Bitcoin. And they get confused because you mentioned you yourself were the subject of a, of a hack uh, that, yes. that, that Bitcoin is not secure. Well, of course, there, there are 
there are other links on that chain, and you're really talking there about one of those links, probably an exchange where, where you were hacked. Correct. Yes, that's correct. It was the, it was it was an exchange. It was uh, it was an exchange in Hong Kong, and this was in 2016 when I was living in the UK. I lost I lost 12 Bitcoin on that hack. Was that the Mount Gox? No, it wasn't Mount Gox, but Phoenix. Oh, so Phoenix, they yeah. land. The, yeah, they landed up making a change to their storage procedures, whereby every single so they use BitGo for that a company that that does. Uh, multi-signature for institutions and uh, someone yeah it, it was a it was an unpleasant experience all right andrew fields co-founder of BitDirect. we're going to leave it there thanks very much for that fascinating discussion on the history and the likely future of money thanks for listening to the money web crypto podcast Hosted by Kieran Ryan. To listen to our other podcasts, go to moneyweb.co.za or the MoneyWeb app and follow MoneyWeb News for daily updates.